Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Jordi Visser, the president and chief investment officer of $1.7 billion Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors, an asset management firm with a 40-year history of focusing on innovative investment processes and cutting-edge thought leadership. Our conversation covers Jordy's decade of learning at Morgan Stanley and then turns to a deep dive on all aspects of Weiss's equity market neutral multi-manager process, including the importance of data visualization to risk management, behavioral alpha, improving portfolio manager performance, 
blending macro insights with a multi-manager team, factor-based replication, hiring managers, ranking managers, and knowing when to move on. We then discuss issues with the use of analytics outside of public equities, the pending problem caused by high corporate leverage, opportunities in biotech and healthcare, the future of the hedge fund industry, and positioning an asset manager for the future. Jordi leads a rigorous approach to identifying, assessing, and improving an internal multi-manager team using data analytics. The transparency and tools he employs are a few steps ahead of where most allocators find themselves today, and as such, his insights can shine a light on the path where all allocators can develop going forward. Please enjoy my conversation with Jordi Visser. Jordi, thanks so much for joining me. No problem, Ted. Happy to do it. I love starting at the beginning, and so why don't you take us back to school? I grew up in a town which at the time was a very blue-collar town. My father is still today and was a construction worker. So I grew up in a blue-collar household. My mother had me when she was 19, so she was a stay-at-home mom. And needless to say, my father, who was a construction worker who didn't graduate high school, had a very entrepreneurial way of construction. He invented all his own equipment. So he's definitely non-consensus and contrarian in the way he approaches things. And the fact that he didn't graduate high school and left in the eighth grade and was an atheist, I didn't really have a lot of beliefs growing up. And (laughs) I, I would say I took that approach in school, but also... I'm definitely a visual learner who is easily bored. And so school was something that I just wanted to find out where the bar was, the line where my parents would leave me alone. So, all right, a B plus will keep me fine. I'll get B pluses. And I didn't really like school, but I went through it and found a way to kind of find the bits and pieces that I liked. I think the one thing that I was obsessed with was analytics and just data. I think I got my first computer as a junior in high school, which was a little Commodore computer, which was just connected the to the Commodore TV. Commodore 64. Exactly. And I was building games. And more importantly, I was, you know, my father owned claiming racehorses that were like $5,000. And I would go through the programs, take all the data because there's tons of data. Uh, I'm a huge Kentucky Derby fan. So this all kind of led to this. But that was the beginning. And that's where I started to realize that what I really liked was data and math. And because my father had an engineering brain, I decided I did not like getting electrocuted and losing my hearing and carrying heavy (laughs) stuff upstairs. So I decided I had to go to college. So I did graduate high school. And then college was a bit of a uh, chore as well in terms of staying focused and going through it. And I did graduate with good grades. But let's just say school and I did not have a perfect relationship. So what lit the spark coming out of school then? I got an offer to go to Morgan Stanley to start in their controller and risk management area. And I'd say when I got there, I was lucky. And sometimes you just get lucky. I ended up being a controller in the derivative area. So you're good with math. You graduate from Manhattan College. You kind of end up at this level where what you're really doing is doing the P&L analysis for option traders. And they were all extremely good at math and they knew something I didn't know a lot of. So the spark came from A, I'm a competitive person, played a lot of sports. And wanted to be as good as them and decided that I would learn how to be an option trader by reading books. And at this stage, I think I could count on my hand how many books I'd read. I really did not finish books. I couldn't keep the attention span for it. But I did read a lot of books on option trading, and it led to some good things at Morgan Stanley. So what was your path there? You started in controller, reading some options books on the side, like most controllers do. 
Yeah, listen, I'm going back. Cause it, first of all, it was an interesting group. So when you get into a controller's area, there's a lot of people that wanted to be controllers for life. They had accounting degrees. I didn't like accounting. So I quickly decided that I was going to use those analytics and start building out a risk system because options at that point, this was in 1992. So options were still kind of a new thing and growing for Wall Street and especially coming out of the crash in 1987. That's really when the option market started to take off and people started to to really want to have puts and we started having skew and we started going through. So I got the ability of doing a lot of analysis. I started coding to some degree. That was my first risk analytics build out that I did to analyze the P&L and to do the exotic options. And a couple people on the trading floor took a liking to me. And like most people that I think have moved up the ladder at those organizations, the politics is a big part. So if you kind of get a mentor that takes a hold of you. And I remember that there was a person specifically, Dave Newbert, who was doing uh, emerging markets, had been brought into the firm. He had spent a lot of time with me trying to understand how I did the analysis on the P&L form. And he just said, you should be up here trading. And he eventually brought me up. And so in 1994, only two years after being at the firm, I was now leaving controllers, joining him in terms of running an emerging market book with him. And he was going to be moving down to Brazil and gave me the Mexico book for the firm. So I was trading equity derivatives, a Mexico book, starting in October of 1994. And then two months later, we had the devaluation. (laughs) (laughs) Ended up with the Christmas that really never happened. But I was, at the time, only two years of Morgan Stanley. A lot of firms ran into a lot of trouble with the devaluation. Luckily, the book was handed off to me in a very nice way with a lot of hedges and a lot of protection by David. And that kept me in a place where... A, I wasn't fired. Secondly, where I got to learn a lot through the process of what to do. And I ended up trading the market well after that. And I think I learned that if you can prepare or be in a position where you're not hurt during emotional times and you have the market effectively on tilt, it creates more opportunities. And I'd say that philosophy started all the way up until now. That's the philosophy that I have, which is that if if you can identify ahead of time risk rewards that are changing and you have a Bayesian framework that identifies that this is not worth it. The hardest thing for type A people to do is to actually be patient and sit on their hands. And sometimes that's the best way to deal with that. And that's what I learned. So I ended up on the option desk at that point. And then three years later, through a variety of other luck, David ended up taking a program job. So he was supposed to go to Brazil and open office for the firm there. He'd been working on it for the better part of three years. He got this other opportunity and they asked me if I would go. And again, I was very young at the time. So it was a great opportunity. And luckily, when you grow up with a father who doesn't graduate high school and (laughs) built all his own equipment, you don't have a lot of fear of failure. So I accepted and went down to Brazil and was there in 97, 98, which was during the emerging market crisis. And because of my Mexico experience, we did very well there. And then I came back and uh, finished up my Morgan Stanley career, basically Running some of the index derivative business, specifically the S&P book, which was the largest option book at the firm, and then took over the exchange-traded fund. And finally, right before I left, they gave me a chance to actually run some of the sales businesses as well. So I had the fortune over effectively what was a 11, 12-year period at Morgan Stanley that I got thrown into a lot of different jobs. 
And I think that helped a lot in building out a breadth of experiences that I still to this day cherish in terms of learning things and not having the same job every single day, I would have been bored. Yeah. So you mentioned that one key lesson in positioning yourself for tough times and being patient and weathering through. What were the other lessons that you took away from your experience at Morgan Stanley? I learned more than I can imagine by asking people questions. So because I didn't come out of school with a lot of memorization, <laughs> I was learning on the job. So the books were one thing, and that was what I started with because I didn't want to be vulnerable to the option traders. So I actually wanted to get them to think that I knew what I was doing when I had no idea. So I had to go through and learn it. As time went on and I became less let's say, fearful of being vulnerable and thinking that I was already realizing that I had something there that I should pay attention to. I just started asking people questions. And I always say to young people that I get involved in that you have a lot of curiosity and creativity and you can destroy it if you stop asking questions. And questions are really important. And I would say that I asked a ton of questions to people about everything, how to manage people, markets. I spent a lot of time getting to know people in all the other divisions. And I'm an introvert. So this is not like socially easy for me to just go out there and talk to people. But I think it worked out well that I asked a lot of questions. Any other big ones? Brazil was a big thing. I think my travel as a child involved New Jersey and Florida. And I don't think there was anything in between. <laughs> I remember when Morgan Stanley said they were going to send me to London to train someone on what I was doing. And I informed them that I didn't have a passport. And they said, well, you have to get one. And I said, I don't know how to get one. <laughs> so there were a lot of things about me at that stage there where I had a lot to learn. And when I went to Brazil, Brazil was an experience that because I had never really been overseas for any long periods of time. And now I was living in a country where the English was not spoken. I think it built up another level of what I call elephant skin, which just thickened my ability to handle stuff. Brazil's not an easy place to live. And so in the last five years, I've written many papers with adapt or die in there. And I think Brazil was my first kind of experience of adapt or die. And it worked out extremely well. What was tough about living there? The biggest difference... And I just wrote a paper where I referenced that my parents went through a divorce and there was no abuse, but there was just no love. So it was constantly as a kid, you're wondering when the next fight's going to be or the next argument. And my grandmother was a stable force for me. In Brazil, it was very similar. You're living on eggshells. You constantly are worried that someone's watching you. I wore a Timex watch. I drove around in a Volkswagen Rabbit, but I was the head of an office running the sales and trading effort down there. No one knew who I was. I didn't wear a suit. So I tried to hide in and blend in as much as possible. But even when you did that, they still kind of know. So the distribution of wealth problem in Brazil just had you on edge. And you take that for granted in the United States that when you walk around, you don't think about these things. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Before we move on, any other things that pop into your head as important lessons you learned in your years at Morgan Stanley? I've given you kind of the pros one of the most important things and the reason that I left was a negative. At some point when I came back from Brazil, where I think at the beginning of the office, there were 10 of us there. So it was a little tiny thing. I think the last number I heard down there was over 200. So the office grew from that point into a big office. But when I came back to New York and they said, okay, here's your book and these are the people you're managing. And it was a very different experience. And I think when I left or made the decision to leave in 2002, the major reason was that I realized that 
whether it was because of my father and his entrepreneurial side, whether it was my introvert and just liking things kind of quiet and going through it, or whether it was growing up in a divorced household and really wanting this team atmosphere that I had in my sports teams where I really liked the camaraderie, it was very, very different at a big organization where politics were dominating. And I just reached a level where I realized that my job as I went higher and higher up was to fire people. And that was really what it was. And I didn't see the ability for the company of that size to adapt. And I started to get into technology. I think the most important paper I read in the early 2000s was by, I believe his name was Jim O'Neill at Goldman Sachs, and it was on bricks. And he coined the phrase bricks. And I started realizing that I should leave and focus on emerging markets, that the math was just there and that they were going to be the biggest part of the world and that emerging markets, Morgan Stanley was not set up for that. They didn't understand it. It was a cultural thing and their business was in New York and Japan and Europe and that we were getting into the lending business. And so I just viewed it as, I think it's time for me to do something entrepreneurial, get a smaller place, build it out. And then finally, I had spent enough time as a salesperson looking at the hedge funds and I just thought that the industry was ripe for the same type of disruption that the mutual fund industry went through in the 90s with exchange-traded funds and that the hedge fund industry would go through a similar thing. And then coming out of that disruption, there'd be an opportunity for new types of asset management companies. And that was all in a nutshell why I was running away from And that's 203. So that thesis was completely right, as it turned out, at least for you know, six or seven years. What happened with your individual experience? <laughs> so I left in 03, launched a macro fund called Anchor Point Asset Management. I think at the peak, the assets got up to around 40 to 50 million. And I had a lot of hedge fund friends that invested both from Brazil and in the US and people that I had a great relationship with that kind of gave me good advice on leaving. But I realized at that point that to build an asset management company out, starting with 50 million and kind of going through the stuff was going to be a long process. And in 2005, I just happened to meet George Weiss, not in an interview, but on someone who knew me saying, George Weiss is trying to do a business plan where he's been kind of a family office. He's trying to do a multi-strategy fund. I'm really worried because he doesn't sound like he's comfortable with the returns and what he's seeing. And he's been going down this path and he's looking for some advice on how to hedge out portfolio. And he was talking to someone and wanted someone else to bring in. And so they just connected him. And I met George, and it was a life-changing experience for me. So what was that initial spark that changed your life? George was the most unique person I had met in one important thing. He was incredibly successful in the hedge fund industry. And at the same point, he was one of the nicest people I had ever met. And those two don't go hand in hand normally in the industry. Most people get into it because of the wealth opportunities. And George had been very successful doing it. But there was just this thing about him that was very fatherly. And we took a liking to each other instantly. And someone had warned me saying, yeah, when you meet George, he's very charismatic. And if you're not careful, you'll end up working with him. <laughs> and needless to say, he may have said, you're going to work here that first meeting. I know we hugged. And I I'd said to him, I'm like, I've never hugged my father and I've already hugged you. So it was this like moment that was life-changing. And I think at that point I had a trust and he seemed to trust me. And I explained the asset management vision in 2005 to him. And he at the time was 62 or 63. So he was looking for some sort of a transition. I think he wanted his legacy to continue. So at the time we just kind of met and wanted to explore what that relationship could be. So what was here then and what was your strategy platform that you laid out for the future? There's two parts. One is there were probably 
about 13 teams here. George had, there's a lot of people that credit him with market neutral, and I would say his version of market neutral to this day is still very unique. He ran a utility-specific stock fund during the 70s. We had our 40-year anniversary in October, so this company's been around. We don't know of many more, if, if any, that are, that are older. But he really did combine the concept of no factor risk by being in utilities and then by having high turnover. And that's the part that gets left out. So I think market neutral has kind of changed to where we're talking factor neutral more. I think people have gotten smarter about factors, obviously, in the last few years. But George also added the element of turnover, which was really important. And as time went on, and I'm sure we'll talk about this eventually, I was fascinated by the whole thought process of George of why the turnover was the key thing to his success. He chose something where he basically was running kind of like a market-making business, and the banks were using him for liquidity purposes. So he was a liquidity provider, high turnover, market neutral, made it unique. So he had trained a total of five teams that are still here today, and that was during the late 80s and early 90s. And then he also brought on seven or eight other teams by the time I got here. So the multi-strat was now about 13 teams and it hadn't been launched yet. It was just running his capital. And so when I joined, the goal was, number one, I still wanted to manage a macro portfolio. So I brought my team here. And then once we launched, we would manage a portion of it and I would build out effectively what would look at like an 80-20 structure. So 80% would be predominant long, short equity market neutral. And then the 20% would be macro, macro managers we chose had a long vol type return profile to go against some of the market neutral strategies. And so that's the way it looked then. There were about the same amount of people there are now. There was a little over 100. Right now, we're somewhere around 110. So we're right around the same number. Culturally, the place was unique. I mean, he focused a lot on ethics and values and culture. A lot of them were from the University of Pennsylvania. So, and he had recruited them to play football. So a very family office type feel that we've tried to keep as the firm has grown and as we've changed people. And there's been changes o- over the years, but I would say that would be the way I would describe it. What was the first sort of adaptation that you found you had to make? So you started in 05, you've got the crisis in 08. At what point in time did things shift and how did they shift? Well, getting back to the reason why George was interested in speaking to someone, George had gone through a long time period where not only had they been highly successful, I think the the family office returns were above 50% a year. So when you compound at 50% a year, you're, you're really doing well and numbers grow big quickly. <laughs> but also for him, the drawdowns were very limited. It was 2005 when we met, and earlier on in that year, there was some issues that were going on with Delphi and General Motors and some downgrades and things along those lines that caused some disruptions in the credit market. The portfolio had a drawdown. So they had made a lot of money, and then they had drawn down. So that's what led to him going, okay, I got to change some things. So the first adaptation was really bringing in a risk philosophy that had limits to the managers. And I would say we started the process of more transparency. We focused a lot as a risk committee before we launched. There were people that had been here, Rick Doucette, Apollo Wong, and some others that were very good on the risk side that had built out some systems that were fantastic. And we just added to them. And I think we expanded that as a group. And that led to the first part of just trying to make sure that you could navigate 
things when crisis would come. So if you go back to the Mexico days, one of the beliefs I have in risk management is that you really need to have a lot of data. It needs to be visual. If it's uh, tabular, it doesn't speak to you. And data visualization is the most important thing to me, heat maps, anything along those lines. And it was very simplistic back then because the computer power was not there. It's much easier today. But I think that was the biggest thing was get more granular data to make sure that we can make decisions. And that helped us a lot throughout the period in 07, 08, and the crisis. So if you think of a specific example of that time, whatever tools you have, visualization of data and risk, what are you looking for in any particular portfolio manager's book to flag and take action? I'm going to kind of take it back to the philosophy that George had. So let's take the two things. So we want it to be, quote unquote, factor neutral. And instead of it being neutral, since there's really no such thing, we want it to be, the managers to be factor aware. So we had to have visualization that showed them what was there. We had to have turnover. So I think one of the biggest problems and the biggest change that ensued post the crisis, which we'll speak about, was the word static. It's static that's a problem to me. Dynamic managers, hedge fund managers, are active managers. Static managers are passive managers. And I think there were a lot of people in the hedge fund industry that were running passive portfolios that had a very small active component. And I think that's why the fee structures and a lot of things have changed over the years is as we got more granular data, you started to identify who was actually passive and who was active or on the scale of active and passive, who was more active and more passive. So I think that was a big part of that period of really focusing a lot on the philosophy of risk of make them factor aware, let them know that we know what's there, try to find people that are able to produce consistent and persistent returns. And to do that, the number one factor we saw over time was the ability of having smart turnover. And why? What is it about turnover that allows you to create the risk exposures you want? I think 2007, 2008 was a year that people still have not put enough care in thinking about why this really disrupted the hedge fund industry. So if you look at hedge fund returns back to August of 07, which was when the quant unwind occurred, if you look at the overall returns of hedge funds and you just look at any measure, um, there's barely any returns, if any. You've had periods where it's gone on, but from that point, it's been very difficult. And I'm not blaming 08 because I think 08 was just a cycle. Uh, We've had plenty of little cycles, but the iPhone came into existence in June of 07. And then quantitative easing came into existence in the bottom in 09. Those two things had a huge impact, I think, on hedge funds. Number one, you had the competition from the quants, which really started to grow once the iPhone came in. We had advancements, obviously, in the cloud and everything afterwards that brought the barriers to entry down. So the quant space just started to compete. And the edge that managers had, to some degree, was not having that competition. So finding data that others couldn't find, and computers were really good at finding it. But the second thing was we had a change in the demographics and in passive investing. So I think the money being managed by retail before 07 and obviously before 2000, created opportunities because retail was competing with hedge funds. And then money went more passive, and now people were competing with computers. And so the efficiencies just started to be taken out of the business. And for us, turnover was important, like poker. And so this gets this is really the transition into something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, which is behavioral alpha. Do you have people that are making decisions 
based on the future and constantly reassessing in a Bayesian framework when they should be taking down risks, not after the event, but it gets back to what I learned about Mexico. If you have events like the devaluation in Mexico, you don't have a window to go make risk adjustments. You have to be doing it before. And that's very difficult for people that think that they'll be able to get out. So in cycles that before 2007 were elongated, and especially in the US, I think Abby Cohen said that getting the US economy to turn down is like turning a super tanker. It takes a long time for it to go. Well, in emerging markets, it happens very rapidly. Flows go out and the same thing happens with high yield companies and things like that. And I think the cycles have changed significantly and that has made it more important for managers to be more predictive and to know their space really well as to when they should reduce risk and when they should increase risk based on opportunities. And the paper that I just wrote for this year is all on the fact that I actually think this is going to get worse going forward, not better, that the cycles will be even shorter and sharper. And I thought last year was very similar to 2007, 2008 with a major turning point, which will change the investment environment for the next decade. What drives that behavioral alpha? Again, this gets back to the point of cognitive biases and kind of highlighting to people what they do. So if you have a fear of missing out and you're part of the FOMO and you're going to put positions on because it's working and you're going with it and you assume you're going to be able to get out. We've had a massive move in momentum in investing over definitely over the last five years. I think it was always there. I think it just paid off for most people. When value became more difficult starting in August of 07, and I think value has been beaten down as an investment style. One of the major reasons was because we had this shift to where these mega companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, Microsoft, all of them dominated from the 08 period. And we saw a lot of the value names fall down. I think behavioral alpha at the end from my, using kind of the Annie Duke framework in our book for making better decisions, can you be flexible in your mindset? Can you fold the hand? Can you size up very quickly? In a poker, I think she said in one hand, you could have 20 different decisions that you have to make. And I'm sure the number can be bigger depending on the hand. If you're investing in making decision changes every six months or every year, that environment I just don't think works anymore if you want to get paid active management fees. So the fees have come down and I think there's been alignment between who's an active manager and active management to me is all about behavioral alpha the ability of getting out of stuff at the right time and sizing up at the right time, admitting that you made a mistake and folding your hand and moving on to the next one. Those are not easy decisions for people to make. And I think historically, it probably wasn't as important as it is now because the inefficiencies of fundamental alpha have been stripped out of the market. I think you can't believe that you're finding something that other people and more importantly, computers haven't found. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. 
absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now back to the show. That notion of changing your mind in the right way behaviorally almost implies that there's information that you're responding to appropriately. The more you make these decisions, the less fundamental information there may be. So what is it that you're measuring to say, oh, behaviorally, that was a good decision, that was a bad decision? As we've built out skills and biases, and I'll I'll try to use a baseball analogy, because when Moneyball was first out, I think the focus got into the part of finding advanced analytics, so different analytics than what people were looking at. So we'll follow whip. We'll follow not just hits and batting average, but we're going to look at walks. We're going to incorporate everything in. So the baseball analytics just changed, and we started getting more analytics. And I think this industry has gone through the same thing. The other part is if you want to make someone better, you got to show them their biases. I'm sure everyone has seen when you watch the World Series or the playoff games, and they have this box, and when the batter comes up, it says, okay, he bats 180 on pitches above the waist, and he bats 370 on pitches below the waist. Okay, so then what he really needs to do is try to only swing at the ones below the waist. Does he have the ability of doing that? And that's behavioral alpha. The ability of not letting your brain go after that high pitch is the problem. So it makes you both smarter, that if you can see it. I always joke that the majority of what we learn as humans happens when we're young and we have all these connections that occur with seeing things. And most of what we learn is with our eyes. And so data visualizations become very important for this firm to teach people things, to just show them that, hey, you know what? When you size up your portfolio, your hit ratio is extremely high. When you take your portfolio down, your hit ratio is very high. Those are good things to know. You should be really increasing risk more even to what you're doing and decreasing more when you have these intuitive decisions. And They're not easy to quantify in terms of what they're seeing. Sometimes it's a feel. Sometimes it's the sentiment. But this brings in the incomplete information that exists in poker, which has to do with the table. You're investing in stocks, and you think they're going to go up because of fundamental reasons. But at the end of the day, you need other people to also buy them for that reason or to buy them in general to make them go higher. I was with Mike Milken recently, and he specifically said the reason he likes bonds as opposed to stocks from an investment standpoint is... I don't need other people to buy them. I just need them to pay me off. So I'm happy being the only person buying them. In stocks, I need other people to buy them. I don't like that. And it relates to me in terms of the way that we've spent behavioral alpha here. So the position sizing, like when you pick names and you've got conviction, how good are you knowing the conviction in your names? There's an element in all of this of poker playing. And the most successful people we've had here over the last five years that have had the most consistent returns, their skills and biases show their ability to fold, their ability to be patient, their ability to be quick when they see something they like, to have forward-looking high hit ratio of taking down their portfolio at a gross level or at a name level, and probably equally as important as using new tools to figure out how to compensate for the biases. So some people just keep those biases, but they use tools to compensate for them. Like what kind of tools? One of the things about being trained on the derivative side that I think has helped our ability to use the technology. It's not just that I coded at a young age, but a derivatives person is trying to hedge a portfolio completely with multi factors. So you're trying to eliminate all the Greeks in your portfolio so that on a daily basis, your PL is moving based on what you want. In a portfolio with 70 stocks, 
let's say 35 by 35, most managers think they understand all the risk in their portfolio, and that's just not possible with 70 positions. So we try to dumb it down to eight factor risks that you have. And then we show them if you wanted to get rid of that factor risk, here are the names that you could do it with. Here's a swap you could create. This is the VAR that would come down if you do this. And then we give them basically an optimization button where if they press a button, it says this is what your portfolio would do to keep the names the same, but take the VAR down 70% and eliminate most of the factor risk. And so we tried to give them different tools too. Are those eight factors kind of traditional factors? You think of momentum size, sector? The fundamental factors, I think for everybody are the same. And value, momentum, quality, everything along those lines. We also use cross-asset risk premia. We also spend time on macro factors. We also do customized factors. So we've gotten into a world that I think is more thematic, just use the tax cuts. So there were companies that benefited from tax cuts. It didn't. That doesn't show up as one of the factors until they're all working, and then it shows up in momentum. But in the interim, we want to know if that is a factor that's there. So that is a pattern recognition side. And it's one of the machine learning techniques that we try to use is is matching up factors that we can create. So I will create a lot of factors that I think are important. So if I see this interesting thematic idea and Goldman Sachs sends it to me and it's been working, then I will take that, put it in our system and overlay it with a bunch of our teams and see if they've ended up in the same thing. Most of the time, it's not even intentional. It's just ended up that way because they like the momentum is happening in the earnings stuff, but now they're aware that, okay, I have this factor, so I should be aware of what could change it. And then the psychological side to me that I bring outside of the analytics is a belief that for human beings to be able to be more flexible and have behavioral alpha, they need to verbalize things. So one of the things that makes them more aware and more comfortable with this risk is just verbalizing it to someone. And so I try to, when I see something has gotten bigger and bigger, we kind of have this little, okay, let's go verbalize with them for a while. Let's let them say what their exit strategy is. Let's say what the idea is. Let's make them say, and that way by saying it, generally it helps them. I think when the decision comes down to either take it down, they tend to be more proactive. At least that's what I believe. So it's the structure, I just want to make sure I understand the structure of the risk framework. So it sounds like you're sitting at the top and you have portfolio teams and maybe you have like these eight core factors, but then you're constantly looking for things that are relevant in the market, turning that into a factor, using that to sort of assess maybe second order risks. And do those more peripheral ones come in and out? Let me give you one part here. So I stopped managing money for the firm in 2014. We hired Chuck Crow, our chief data scientist in 2013. We rolled out the full, as we call them, baseball cards towards the end of 15. All of that kind of coincided with the framework of risk that now exists today. So when you come out with a new approach, you don't actually know what the process is going to look like. (laughs) You're incorporating some technology. But I think what started to happen, and we judged this by the success that we heard from the users, we give the managers pretty much full autonomy. They provide us with their risk limits that's agreed upon with the risk committee and the allocation committee. They can stay within them and do what they want. We don't tell them what to do. We don't take their portfolio down. They have free autonomy to kind of move around the way they want. But here's the relationship. They know that we know what's in their portfolio. One of the things in this industry, which is still a problem today, which I think is going to be a major part of the next few years, the fees came under attack probably after 2016. It was a bad year. And I think that was the year that people really started to focus on them. Fees are not the only issue. Obviously, you do have funds that 
are more passive than active, so their fees should go down. But really, the problem is you're making decisions on something very opaque, and you don't know what you're getting involved in. So transparency is really important. And the joke I always make is, I don't like stories, and I really don't. Everybody here is very educated. And if I ask someone why they made or lost money, they tell me a story. And I don't like stories. So we have the data now. And the data tells me the story. And then we go in and we ask them why they took this risk. There's no stories anymore. There's just not. And so it's very integrated to where the data scientists and myself spend a lot of time looking at the portfolios. And I'll just give you an idea. There was a team yesterday that had a two standard deviation move in their P&L during the day. Now, it ended up normalizing back to where it was only probably about a one and a quarter standard deviation. And for the week, they're flat. Now, if you're an outside investor, you don't have any data on that. I got to see and I said, why is there a two standard deviation move? What happened? So I'll go look at the factor risk. Doesn't show much factor risk. It wasn't idiosyncratic risk. So I started playing around with what customizable factors were going on. I looked at them. I looked at the pattern of their portfolio if they had it on the last three months. And it was something that was more similar to what was happening with a combination of quality and growth. And so my thought process then is to go talk to the manager a little bit and just get a sense as to what their portfolio represents, how they felt today when they were down this much. We have a lot more information. And by getting kind of a verbal connection with them at that point, it's much easier for us to make better decisions on the managers. And I just think that the outside world is going to have to get more transparent to feel comfortable with the fees they're paying so that they can make better decisions on who's there. One thing I should say, because when I talk about this stuff, every manager here, we want to basically do the same thing. So we're looking for them to basically be able to make money on a rolling 10-day basis over 60% of the time, on a rolling five-day basis over about 55% of the time. We want them to be able to make money most years, running market neutral with high turnover with a sharp ratio that fits somewhere around one. Now that's a lot of demands. It's not easy to find, but I do think if you're trained in that way, you can do it. And that way we're looking for people that when we have this portfolio, none of them are correlated to any one factor for very long. And that way, if they're all not correlated to any one factor, then when you put them in a diverse portfolio, the correlation of the overall portfolio to any factor is even lower. And our pairwise correlation amongst the teams is somewhere around 0.1 to 0.15, which means when you look at it, we really don't have teams that are correlated to each other. We don't have overlapping approaches. So one of the things that's always baffled me about these multi-manager platforms is you control the risk, you have objectives for risk return, sharp ratios, whatever the case may be, and it all makes sense from a risk perspective. But how does the individual PM make money? Let's assume because we're running a neutral portfolio, let's just use market neutral. Let's assume everyone is dollar neutral each day and they have 35 longs, 35 shorts, and every single name at the end of the year is up 5%. So the only way they could have made money is if there was a lot of dispersion in between the ending. So it's a combination of the dispersion on some type of time period and the volatility in the marketplace. And that's what we do. So going back to George's roots, we have liquidity providers. So we're trying to find people who are comfortable providing liquidity. And the arbitrage or the edge that we think exists is there's not a lot of liquidity providers right now. Dodd-Frank really neutered the sell side in a very big way. There's just not as many prop desks. They can't hold positions in these things overnight the way they used to. So their balance sheets are under constraint. There weren't a lot of liquidity providers to start out with. People were more momentum-based. But I think the liquidity providing mechanism has just been better. There's less liquidity. So you're getting more of these one-off shocks. And so 
I think for us, one of the reasons that we have been able to be consistent the last three years in a challenging environment has been that there's been more dispersion opportunities. I think that all started in August of 15. Two things coincided in that final quarter, really four months of the year that I still don't think people have have come to grips with. Number one, China devalued their currency in August of 15, which was a big deal. China's not an emerging market at that stage. They're one of the largest countries in the world. Second thing is quantitative tightening really began. So the Fed finally raised rates in December of 15. And so if you take that period there, we're in quantitative tightening now. And China and the US are in a trade war and probably more importantly, embarking on something which I think has historic implications, or at least for the next 10 years. But it's this relationship from a technology basis with the two technology powers on the planet realizing that at some point you don't want other people making your technology. And that's a big change considering it was the driving investment force really for people to make money since 2007. So when you see important macro inflection points that you think even today, other investors may not have interpreted the same way that you did, does that filter into what you're doing in the portfolios when the individual PMs or have these risk constrained portfolios? And how does it if it does? My job on the macro stuff, I think, is to help with the Bayesian side. So I'm trying to be like at a poker table, walking around the poker table and helping the individual players, not by telling them what's in everyone's hands, but by highlighting, you know, you've got this on there. They just bet this way over there. You sure this is a good risk reward at this point? So I'm not telling them what to do, but just to give you an idea, last year, size was a volatile factor. So initially, we saw small cap outperform large cap. Right around April, when the tariffs started to go into place, it made sense. Okay, tariffs are going to place. Multinational companies, large cap companies will be more affected. Domestic companies will be okay. The US economy is fine. Global economy is bad. Then all of a sudden, we started worrying about growth. And around June, July, you started to see the large cap. Oh, we got to go buy large cap because the balance sheets are better. I'm, I'm worried about GE. I'm worried about all this stuff. Whether I'm right or wrong, I'm generally, like I mentioned at the beginning with my father, I've been trained to try and find things that are high reward, low risk scenarios. So if I think those things, what I end up doing is we have a meeting every morning for 15 minutes. So I follow the 15 minutes is a good amount of time to keep people's attention. (laughs) And we sit down and I use visuals. So I go through a Bloomberg presentation every day. I try to highlight the things that have changed recently and why I think these things may impact the risk reward. And so by doing that, that's kind of the way that I serve a purpose here at this point. Yeah. I want to circle back to two things you mentioned. The first was this very granular example, the story you told of the team who had an intraday two standard deviation move. So you have this conversation with them. What happens? So what did you find? And did they do anything about it? So part of what you want to find, and this is the collection of data, I want to see their reaction. I want to know if they were in control. They knew exactly what was happening. And basically what that comes down to is how aware were they? How aware were they of the portfolio and how aware were they of their kind of thought process in terms of their exit strategy and what they were thinking behaviorally? So when you learn that, no, we had one company that all of a sudden intraday that wasn't part of our portfolio had kind of at a conference spoke about something, that company got hit, a bunch of other companies that are very similar got hit at the same point. We weren't surprised by the company A at the conference that spoke. And so we're not as worried about the portfolio. In fact, what we ended up doing was we added to the positions. That gives me a really good data point 
of how the behavioral alpha of that person is. How emotional were they during there? How much did they know their space and know what was in them? That's kind of what you want to identify how good someone is. If you don't ask the question, you're just using numbers. And I think hearing people speak and how aware they are of their portfolio gives you a lot more comfort. Okay, so then turn that to the baseball cards. You mentioned baseball cards. What are they? What's on them and how do you use them? So the baseball card idea started in 2011, 12. I asked our risk manager who had some coding experience to do the first part of them, which was really make sure that we knew who we were paying. So the first thing was, I said to him, here's the deal. I want to see if I can replicate their returns. So why don't you take all of these factors and take all of their historical returns and see how easy it is to do a time series regression to effectively replicate their returns and just rank them based on how easy it is. So some kind of confidence level. So not that complex of a situation, but the real reality of doing it was we're paying our portfolio managers the same amount of money, which is a percentage of what they make after expenses. Why should I pay all of them the same amount if I can replicate what someone's doing with a very high confidence level, even if they've made money every single year? If they've been making money because the market's been up nine years in a row, why would I pay for that? So we did that analysis, and then I realized that, number one, it was taking longer than it should. And that was a reflection of just how much data we have, but also how I was trying to take someone who is not a quote unquote professional coder and doing some work that was, I could probably use someone with a little bit more (laughs) uh, robust approach. And that's when I met Chuck in 2013. We brought him in. I explained to him where I wanted to take this. So the first part was, let's make sure that we know who we should pay so that when they come in, I don't have stories anymore and we can actually do it. So we extended the analysis to a lot of time series regressions, not on the long term, but now on a daily basis. I wanted to see the factor stuff so I could be more aware of the factor risks that they were taking. So we wanted to see it in a dynamic framework. A lot of people view factor risk or both portfolio managers and management. So let's break it into three parts. You have the risk manager or the risk group who's monitoring the factor risk. Then you've got management, the people that are running the business, and eventually the risk team will bring it to them, but not on a daily basis, generally. And then you have the portfolio managers. Now, historically, when the portfolio managers get approached on the risk, the risk manager either comes up after they've lost money, I call this autopsy risk management, and say, why did you have all this factor risk? Or they do it ahead of time, but they don't tell them where it is. And so now you've left this person with, you have a lot of factor risk, you have to take it down. Well, where is it? Well, when you take one position out of a portfolio, You have new factor risk. And so this whole thing of, it became very confusing. What we wanted to do here and what Chuck and I came in is, I'm management. I wanted to be heavily involved in the day-to-day knowledge of what was there. And I wanted the managers to be aware. So I wanted management to be aware. I wanted the portfolio managers to be aware. And I wanted the risk people to be aware. That way there was a collaborative relationship on this. And sometimes the best ideas we get are from the users. And that's, I think, in most cases. So this became kind of a beta prototype in terms of rolling it out. And then eventually one of the benefits that came, and this was about the cloud and just the ability of bringing more visualization. When we launched these in 2015, I recognized that some of the PMs were getting better. They were starting to do different things. They were learning. And the reason that they were learning is because they actually saw the visualization, they wanted to get rid of it, and they were being showed how they could get rid of it in a way that was very different than where there's no relationship between them. And I think the collaboration or the ability for the risk people 
to be very similar people as the PMs or very similar people as management. That doesn't happen in most organizations, and that's one of the biggest problems. And so in reality, one of the, the things that helped the baseball cards, which was really just to help us make better decisions on our teams, was the impact of everyone working together on this project. So is the card itself the visualization of some of the important metrics that describe how that portfolio manager behaves? It's broken up into about four parts. The first one is their performance measures, which is very traditional Morningstar type stuff. So there's some things that I think are more creative, but that stuff I always say is the most boring part of kind of going through it. The second part is the factor part. So that really gets into the time series regressions and the holdings base work the two of them, to show the manager, A, what their factor risk is today, but most importantly, and I think the thing that separates what we do from most vendor-based systems I've seen, but also as PMs have come in, this is what they've appreciated the most, is seeing how static their factor risk is. So how does it change over time? So we can mouse across over the last year and see, well, you have momentum on now, but you were short momentum you know, six months ago. And that means they don't have a complete bias towards momentum. We have other people here that have ridden anti-momentum the whole time. And normally those types of teams wouldn't be here. But the one I'm thinking of, they've been up all six years. They've managed money. They run anti-momentum all the time. To give you an idea, their portfolio right now, if they had it on the last 12 months, would be down probably about 20, 25%. So they're in losers versus winners. Value hasn't been working, yet they've made money six years in a row. How can you do that? And so the next tab became the skills and biases. So what are you doing to create the alpha if you're always running anti-momentum? Somehow or another, you're switching around on these things. Their portfolio is fundamentally driven like all of them, but there's a sentiment component. And what they've been the best at at the firm is taking their gross up. So they'll be 85% invested. And then after they have a good run and they feel their portfolio has mean reverted enough, they will take the entire book down. They'll be 15% invested. Now, a lot of our competitors, they don't want their managers to play around with their gross. They're fully invested all the time. This is an approach that we've taken, which has been differently, and it helps us identify the skills and biases that they have. And then the final part, once you get past the skills and biases, is the turnover. And that's really to get a final gauge on how married they are to the concept of investing. We want to err on the side as a liquidity provider on trading. So we have a visualization called fossils where we want to see any position that they have in their portfolio that hasn't been meaningfully changed within 10 days. Now, that's a very short time period. Now, it doesn't have to be completely in or out of the position, but meaningfully change, I think it's about 25%. We just want to know that they've made changes, that they've taken advantage, that if we believe that dispersion volatility are going to increase going forward, which we do, and you have a position, then the current price is $100, and you're believing it's going to go to $130 over the course of the year, and it goes to $115 in two days because there's been this massive short covering rally in the space, have you meaningfully adjusted that position and moved to something else? And then if it goes back down to 100 hopefully it goes back up. So that's kind of the four tabs that we use on this. You mentioned a couple of the PMs having been here a long time and the importance of collecting all the data so you can interpret this. What is the hiring process of bringing teams in and then when teams no longer work, having them come out when the longer someone's here, the better the chance you'll have kind of data that's relevant and they can improve? That's been something that's been difficult, I would say, even over the last 12 months. So over the last four months, we've closed a few teams. And I would say if I thought they had more time, they might actually have, they were getting better at what they were doing, but it gets into the point of what's the right amount of time to give someone to kind of adapt or go through it. So there is no right answer on this. And if I ever figure it out, 
I'd be surprised. I don't believe in this as being science. I believe in it as art, and you're constantly making Bayesian decisions. That being said, I do think you can find people that get better fairly quickly once they get tools. And so the hope on the hiring side, and this is something that I think is evolving for us, and it's the next big push. In fact, so we did the baseball cards for the investment teams and the analysts. We've rolled this out now into the marketing side. So we're now starting to focus on the marketing side for time optimization. So we sit down, we kind of discuss, Chuck and I specifically, George gets involved occasionally. But we sat down with the marketing people and said, what's our goal for marketing right now? And we realized, well, time optimization is the most important thing. Are we wasting time trying to go out and tell people about our story that are not ready to hear our story, don't care about it. And I think that's the marketing effort is you want to make sure you're spending time with the right people. And the question is, no one's going to give you the data to say, yeah, this is the right person. So we're in entering the age where you have to take qualitative data and turn it into quantitative data. And so I'll just give you a brief thing and then I'll get into the hiring side because it fits in the same way. The number one thing we want for people on what we do, multi-strats are complex. I think the approach we've taken is unique. We don't use marketing decks anymore. We use WebExes to present and we show them the baseball cards. How curious are they? Are they asking good questions? Are they engaged? If they're not engaged, the probability of raising money from them is low and maybe they're just not ready for us and we'll ask other questions. But are we talking to the risk taker? How long is their process? Where should they be in the queue for us and what time should we be taking? That's been a big part. We decided that travel is important to shake people's hands, but you get a lot more done out of the office if you can do these things on a computer than you can traveling because then we're showing them exactly what's going on. The hiring and firing thought process has just gone. So codifying responses to things to answer really three questions for us. The first one is, do we think this person has an edge and can make money and is it repeatable? So that's the hardest one to get because you don't have enough data on that. You're getting data and the data might be two years, it's monthly, you got 24 data points, so you're gonna have more data on this person after they've been here one month and they're managing money for you. The other two are equally important to us, and these are the ones that we're spending time now codifying. One is the culture. Are they gonna fit inside this firm? It's really important for us that the culture of the firm stays the same. We think it's been an edge for us in terms of attracting the best talent because we really try to find people that are gonna be collaborative and work together and are independent thinkers so we don't have to worry about group think or anything like that. They're gonna be additive to the process. So the culture is, I would say, a very big part. The other one, which is the most important to me now and the really one I wanna focus on codifying is how well do they already understand factor risk? How much do they get it? The one thing about this part, and I'm gonna go back to my own career, everyone right now who's managing money should understand factor risk. If they dump this off, to their risk team, it's a mistake. You have to embrace it, you have to learn it, and you have to understand it. The same way that when I was trying to know how to talk to the option traders, I read book after book after book. That's the curiosity part. And if they haven't spent the time on it, we're gonna teach them on our dime. And I'm just not in, unless they're just an, an incredible talent that has found ways to make money and they just don't know it. And we think this is gonna be additive to them. That's great. But for the most part, I wanna see how much they've already figured out how to eliminate factor risk, how important it is. Do they know what the charts look like? Where do they get their data? Who have they met with? Anything along those lines. And what do those numbers look like? I mean, the number of people that could come in as a portfolio management team to interview with you, how many of them sort of get even close to the filters of sort of, being aware and being the right fit, and then you think they have the ability to generate alpha? Well, I think to date, the fact that 17 of the 20 were organically 
<laughs> brought up here. <laughs> it has not been a high percentage yet. To be fair to all the people on the outside, I think because we had organic growth, that was probably more than the assets that we had. So we didn't need to bring in people. We've been very selective. I think that process is changing because of the success we've had and just because of a lot of the business plan. We embarked on a very big, as I mentioned at the beginning, a focus as an asset management company rather than a hedge fund. The return stream is the most important part of what we do, but packaging it in other ways has been important. And now I'm meeting a lot more managers. That's why the process is being changed so that we feel we're making better decisions. We do this for the transparency of where the teams fit. So we have a league table, which ranks all of the teams here based on 15 different analytical metrics that are pure quantitative. And then there's about three or four qualitative metrics. And this way, when they come in for their quarterly reviews and we sit down, we show them where they are on the league table. We show them exactly which things they've done poorly at so that they can improve and what they should spend the time on. So there's this transparency between where they are and what's going on. So it's not this hey, you had a drawdown 5%, you're fired. It's really driven by how you guys are handling the whole situation. And as people come in, I think this codifying is going to be equally as important as the way we measure the teams internally. How do you blend this very rigorous analytical approach to ranking your teams and seeing where they are with a culture that you described as much friendlier than most hedge fund organizations? Simple answer that I'm not sure people have appreciated when it comes to analytics. Analytics have a negative connotation and it gets into the big brothers watching. So at most places, they view the risk team as big brother going in, telling them what to do. They don't know what's happening and they end up blaming them. I will just tell you as a fact, great performers do not care if you're looking at what they're doing. (laughs) Meaning (laughs) if they're really good at what they're doing, they want the analytics. They want to get better. They're obsessed with being good and having as much data as they can. They're still going to do what they want to do, but you can take the analytics on me whenever you want. I literally just want to get better what I'm doing. And if I don't know it, I think before we started doing this, you and I were talking about the word denial. And I just think that people that think that they know more, that they can't get better at something and don't want the analytics, that's kind of giving you an idea of who shouldn't be here. I didn't mention this, but so if you ask me one thing about portfolio managers over the years, having worked with not only the ones here, but the option traders at Morgan Stanley, the number one thing that I care about when it comes to people getting better around the analytics is accountability and responsibility. If you're blaming the market or you're blaming CEOs or you're blaming your analyst or you're blaming your trader, those are the people that I can just tell you have had the hardest time adapting. They constantly have a blame for someone and they're playing the blame game all the time. And accountability and responsibility combined with analytics makes it a lot easier to kind of go through things because you have the opportunity to get better because you see what happened. And if you take it on your own shoulders and you go through it, it still might be these other people that are not helping the situation. But when you're the leader of a team, you're making the decision on this. So you have to take some accountability and responsibility, even if it's just for hiring the people that are not creating it. So much of this data is easily digestible and understandable in the equity markets. And it seems like As the equity markets have gotten more efficient, the ways of looking at factors and analytics have gotten more efficient. How do you think about applying it outside the equity markets? That's been a challenge, and we've spent a lot of time on it. So let's use the credit markets. We do use the analytics for the commodities markets and the FX markets, but it's very limited, and you're not dealing with a lot of different components at the end because the equity market has so many 
companies and it's so global, you're dealing with thousands and thousands of opportunities for alpha and for measuring data. The problem with commodities and FX, you don't have it. And the problem with credit, which is the place that I thought we'd kind of go down this path, but those views have changed significantly with my belief on what's happening with corporate credit. I just don't think it's ever going to get there because liquidity has dropped off. So the problem is, what does it matter from a, a factor basis if things aren't even trading? And we've entered this point in the credit markets and the debt markets in general where it's people buy them and they just hold them. So there's not really a lot of trading going on. And I think now that the investment grade market in the US and specifically the lowest grade of investment grade in terms of the triple B area, that is where going forward, the paper I just wrote talked about fallen angels. And I think that's going to be a phrase that people are going to learn more about. But I think the credit markets are going to go through a big change. I don't think the data analytics is going to end up in the same part for that in terms of what's happened with the equity markets. You can't mention Michael Milken and Fallen Angels in the same conversation and then not do a little bit of a deeper dive on what you wrote about. So why don't you talk about high yield bonds, junk bonds, and go from there? Okay. So I always try to find a theme that I think is playing out that's important. And so to make it quick in terms of the, to bring it into the investment grade world, at the end of the day, Michael wrote a paper, I think in the 60s on capital structure and just the relationship between bonds and stocks. And in April of 2009, near the the lows of the great financial crisis, he did, uh, I think it was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, but he wrote an article which specifically was titled, Why Capital Structure Matters. And within that article, he made, as usual, a lot of very, very insightful comments about how you should think about credit and equities when you've had this kind of a fall in both of the securities. So here we are, fast forward. That was in 2009. And we've now had quantitative easing, which kept a lot of companies that may not have made it after the great financial crisis alive. That was one of the intents, was to give people the chance to redo their capital structure. A lot of these companies levered up through buybacks and issuing debt, taking advantage of this. And in the end, my view is they made a bet And the bet was that not only would their businesses be in a position at some point in the future that they'd be able to pay back the debt, they made a bet without thinking about it that the world wouldn't have a dramatic shift. And when you take long-term debt, you're betting that the history of your company and the history of the way the world works is going to look that way somewhat in the future. And I think when China moved their currency in 2015, when quantitative tightening began, we started seeing yields move higher. The triple B yields have moved up over 100 basis points. So it's become more challenging for them on an interest expense. And a lot of these companies, when you go through it, their revenues just never really picked up. They made a bet on their businesses getting better, which didn't happen. And I think the bet that it has cost the most and what I wrote about is I believe we're seeing the unwinding of globalization. Populism is having an impact on that. I think a lot of people have written about it. This is coming from the distribution of wealth problem. It's happening in almost all of the developed countries at this point. And depending on whether you focus on Brexit or what's happening in the United States in terms of the movements on politics, in Italy, in France, you can go through across the globe. This is a rising force and globalization is under pressure. And if globalization is under pressure and you think about these triple B companies, they're 
businesses based on globalization. They're big, gigantic companies that benefited the most from globalization. At the same time, we've had this change from the industrial revolution to the digital revolution. So they also made a bet that Amazon would need up their business and that Apple, the app store wouldn't have an impact on their business. That was a bad bet. It did have an impact. So whether you're talking about Sears competing with Amazon or you're talking about General Electric competing with Amazon and General Electric competing with everyone else, that's happening. But then also you're getting this trade situation that as technology has increased and as we've now entered the age of the internet of things, where sensors are in everything, do you want your sensors and whatever you have being put in by your military powers? And so we have a new part that has transitioned. And that's why when people talk about the trade war with China, the paper was specifically said, this is not about soybeans. This is about sensors in everything. And it's a race to artificial intelligence supremacy. It's about intellectual property. And if you believe that China and the US, that relationship has changed forever, what you're left with is a world of globalization, which is very different. So it's not just populism anymore. It's not just quantitative tightening. They didn't believe all this stuff would happen, and they thought they'd already be in a better position. So if you go through that Mike Milken article in April of 2009, he talks about the fact that capital structure matters when you're betting on what's going to happen in the future. And I think they've just made a bad bet. There's other things that get involved in it, but the reality is I think going forward from here, the market has not adjusted to the fact that these companies are going to have a difficult time and that capital structure, things like covenants, these are going to be a major part of the conversation over the next three to five years. And I don't think people are ready for what that means. All right. So a little cautious on the credit markets. What are you most excited about in the markets? Well, I think the technology stuff dominated. So we had more excitement in terms of advancements in technology. And even though that'll continue, I think that was pretty much when the iPhone came in. We've, we've had a good run with technology. I think the next 10 years is going to be about longevity and advances in healthcare. And I think that's going to be the most exciting thing. Obviously, the biotech industry raised a lot of money. It's interesting that if you go look at the biotech industry relative or any of the small cap biotech industries relative to the NASDAQ or relative to the S&P, they've underperformed the NASDAQ. So they've underperformed tech the last four or five years. They've basically been a market performer with the S&P the last five years. So they raised a lot of capital, didn't get a lot there. We should be getting through when industries take a lot of capital in and you merge in technology, which really helped with the cloud, which honestly, you know, you're talking 14, 15, where Amazon Web Services really took off. The healthcare industry has really been slow to this stuff. I think we're going to start seeing a lot of the benefits. But when you combine it with artificial intelligence, we will be solving a lot of problems. And I can't think of a more exciting period than figuring out how to solve cancer and Alzheimer's in a way that gets bigger, has huge implications. So you start thinking about what this means for the liabilities we have as countries. And I think I get most excited about the fact that we're going to have a movement towards health from the biology side, from the synthetic biology side, which is going to really give us the hope of living longer lives and more importantly, active, healthier, longer lives. What's your take on the future of hedge funds and the hedge fund industry? Well, clearly it's been disrupted just like most industries, predominantly from technology. Because it has a name, which I think everyone would agree doesn't really mean much, meaning hedge fund. So we always make the joke, are you a hedged fund or are you a hedge fund? And a hedge fund has proven to have a lot of beta, a lot of factor risk. And so their fees are kind of going down. I just think that people have to think in return streams and what they're doing. I think there's liquidity providing hedge funds, there's liquidity taking hedge funds. 
the industry is going to be disrupted continually by the risk premium side, the hedge fund replicator side. But there's a need for it because interest rates around the globe, you've got negative yields still in very big places. There's a need for risk mitigation. In fact, last year, I would say, was the worst year for risk mitigation from the hedge fund side. The alternative beta products that people had jumped into did not perform the way most had hoped. The CTAs, which traditionally have helped during years of big falls like we saw, did not help, particularly in the first quarter and the last quarter. So I think the risk mitigation bucket was just not good. And even long vol portfolios, unless they were very focused on the equity side, fixed income vol is still near all-time lows. So even though you had kind of volatile years, the risk mitigation bucket was not there. What we've hoped and the approach we've taken is kind of focus on four levels. And we started this five years ago. Number one was to make sure the organization as a whole embraced technology, not just at the investment level, but the risk management, the operations, the marketing, everything along those lines, the hiring and firing. The second thing was to make sure that we identified the people that we thought would be best suited for an environment which was less predictable and more uncertain. And that got into emphasizing emotional intelligence over their resumes of where they went to school. And I think that was always a thought process here, but I think we really we took it to heart that if you're going to embrace technology and you want people to be adaptive, you need them emotionally intelligent and aware of who they are, and that way they can be more adaptive. We wanted the products to be customizable. Every investor has an issue with liabilities versus expected returns. It is not easy to generate the returns that you need. And I've traveled the country the last five years, and I, I don't think I've yet heard a person say that they think equities will perform more than 6% over the next 10 years. I don't think I've heard anyone say it over the last five years. And we just came out of a period where over a 10-year period, even including last year, I still think it was 14% or something like that. So when people ask me, I'm like, no, I think the next 10 years in the equity markets, the US, and I think globally will be better, but let's just say the US, I still think we'll get 8 to 10%. And I think it's because rates are still low and money has to go to work somewhere. So I still think you're going to get it there. So that whole concept to me of making sure that when you're when you're going out there, you're focused on products that can help people on the other side, insurance companies, pension funds, retirement, retail. So we've tried to focus on that and make sure that we're approaching it from an asset management perspective, but very customizable. And finally, and this one is one of the more important ones that doesn't get enough attention with people. And I think Steve Case wrote a book on this in terms of, I think it was called The Third Wave, where he focused a lot on partnerships. And when you reach this point in the technology side where everyone is being disrupted, every business, every government, and the blockchain is only going to make it worse, partnerships and collaboration are more important. So we have developed some very strategic relationships over the last three years with one with a pension plan one with an insurance company, and then one with a financial institution that's interested in asset management. We're trying to expand those more with the consultants, which we think we can help them with more transparency and how we measure it. But I think the collaboration part is really a, a big part. And those are kind of the four components. Now, I don't think most hedge funds are thinking about those things, and probably they don't need to. So maybe in our case, it was just something. But I think it's taking an empathetic approach in a time where things are just less certain and less unpredictable, but there's a need for it. If you were sitting on the other side of the table and you talked about the need for transparency, the desire to only really pay fees for value added, the allocators don't have access to the information that you do. And you've got this whole suite of, oh, let's just say within hedge funds, even within long short equity hedge funds, we had our portfolio. Now there's replication as an alternative. There's all this other stuff. 
What advice do you give when you're sitting down with one of your clients if they ask you that question, well, how should we think about investing in long short equity funds? Well, the first thing is when the allocators, especially if they're large, they can affect change. So <laughs> the easiest thing that will get them more transparency is as opposed to just spending so much time on, well, if you take 15 basis point off and we go through this and they're going down a path that's all fee-based, I think if at the same time they say, well, we'll allocate this money to you. Here's what we're expecting out of it. We, we'd like you to come present to us you know, three times a year, help with our allocation process. And we want weekly data and we'd like to have monthly holdings and we want you to put them into this system so that we can measure them and have access. I think that's where they could affect change in that way. Now, United States pension funds are very different than Canadian pension funds. <laughs> and the sophistication level and I think the ability to do these things is more limited. But I think it has to happen if you're going to invest in the hedge fund space. You don't have to have, and I think this is one of the issues you don't need to have full transparency in a levered loan book, in a private equity book. Like You're just at the mercy of, these are illiquid things, they're not going to move that much, and you're giving money based on the qualitative stuff of the managers. For an active manager that's in equities, there's no excuse why you can't get the data because it's very simple to do it. There's tons of ways. It doesn't cost much in this day and age with data to do it. So I think what's going to happen over time is the transparency part should not be a blanket thing to all investments. But it should be a core component of what you're doing on the hedge fund side, the same way that netting risk is something that people have not spent enough time on. And I think the netting risk component is a really important part. So if you're like Weiss, where we bear the netting risk as a partnership, that was a decision we made to align ourselves with the investors. They should recognize that we're taking that risk out of their portfolio. And it's a big benefit to them. Now, they don't have to have that from all of them. And they shouldn't only invest in multi-strategy funds that bear the netting risk. They should invest in various structures, but they should appreciate the netting risk component. So I think over the course of the next few years, and you got to give it time because I think it was 2016 that the movement of one or 30 and kind of focusing on the fees and the alignment of what you're getting paid matched up. That was good for the industry. I think it was a good decision to make since returns were difficult. I think the next thing is the transparency. And what would you do as your next step if you were not so big that you could have some market power in that negotiation of what you get access to. So you're a mid-sized investor or smaller investor. The future says we might get to a place where you have more transparency. What do you do today? Well, in this case, I do think you can, and people have done this, if you're going to be small, you're going to have to outsource some things. And the outsource CIO thing has grown in stature. I think there's some merits to it. I think you have to be careful of who you're choosing. I think transparency should be a big part of it so that you have some kind of, maybe not the decision-making, but some knowledge of what's going on that you're not getting a story. And at the end of the day, for people that go get physicals, you really want the data. The more data you have, the more predictive analytics are going to help you going forward, the better you're going to be of knowing what's the problem. I think for anyone, small cap, mid cap, and the largest pension funds, any transparency you can get is better. But I do believe it's difficult for the smaller places to go. But that's where the OCIO groups kind of come in to hopefully be able to help them navigate through this in a way where they're taking it. But I would emphasize when you're doing your due diligence what the plan is on the transparency side. All right, let's turn to some closing questions, Jordy. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Hiking, skiing, and biking. So over the years, as I've become or been forced to be more of an extrovert, <laughs> I have found the pleasures of meditation and hiking 
and biking and skiing. I didn't start skiing until I was in my 40s. And I found it to be both challenging, but a necessary thing to get me into nature in the wintertime. So that would be my favorite. All right, what's your biggest pet peeve? Anger. (laughs) (laughs) I really have a hard time. I'm in New York City a lot. There's a lot of angry people in New York City. There's a lot of horn blowing. There's a lot of construction with people yelling at each other. And anger is my biggest pet peeve. All right. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? Trying to find things that have already worked. From my side, I really try to find things that have not worked yet. What's your favorite thing to read regularly? Or what reading do you almost never miss? Six years ago, I met a general who was a brigadier general in the Air Force, younger than me, and we developed a relationship over our kind of knowledge of China. And he was the first person to suggest to me that I really should start reading on the singularity. And that has lived with me since that day. I believe everybody who's in the business of investing should spend a lot of time reading stuff on the future and what it's going to look like. I say to people regularly, I don't think there'll be bonds and everything will be free in 30 years. I say it not as a fact or as a guess, but it's something I do believe is coming because of my belief in the impact that nano and 3D printing and artificial intelligence and robotics, synthetic biology, and all these things are going to have, and that there's a math behind it that people will recognize when 5G becomes more of a a normal thing and just how the internet of things are growing. So I'm going to say the singularity, but I'm going to add one more because I've written a lot. And two years before I met the general, I also started taking some training in meditation and just an understanding of Buddhism. And, you know, my father is and was an atheist. And so I didn't have a lot of beliefs. And I'm not a religious person, but I do believe in the concept of karma. And I do believe in the concept of doing good and going through it. And I like people who go through it. So reading about Buddhism, reading about meditation, and probably most importantly, neuroscience and just kind of the way your brain works has been a big part. That's great. What teaching from your parents most stayed with you? So I have a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson that I use for my children and my father. It's kind of what I took from him, which is life is a succession of lessons which must be lived to be understood. And that really got in the part of, okay, maybe I didn't enjoy school, but the experiential part and putting yourself out there and taking the risks and then how you come back from them. So going through Mexico in 1994 and processing and realizing it. My best friend growing up, the best man at my wedding died in 9-11. And I remember giving his eulogy and it was an important part of my life to be grateful for the time that I had with him. And recently my grandmother died at 98. My grandmother was one of the most important people in my life. I gave her eulogy. My mother asked me to do it and it was special because I was so close to her, but also it gave me the chance to reflect in that type of way about the things that my mother and father did for me. So my father taught me that. My mother really taught me patience. Patience is not easy for me. I'm definitely a type A person, love to move around, get as many steps in in a given day. But I think she was a very patient woman being very religious while my father was very atheist. (laughs) Not the easiest thing to say, yes, you're going to church. Why are you taking him to church? So when you have this conflict inside the house, I always say my mother, who had me at a young age, was very patient. And that patience over time really helped me kind of deal with, I'd say, people in general and just being careful not to want things too quickly. All right, last one. What's your favorite motto 
that embodies an important life lesson? If you're going to have good relationships in life with friends, with family, with colleagues, it has to be based on trust. Awesome. <laughs> Jordy, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate the invitation. I was happy to do it, Ted. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 